Up next, we have an American professor and critic who speaks to the complex dynamics of the American experience. He's the convener of conversations and debates, the James S. McDonnell Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. He's an author of many books on religion and philosophy, a columnist for Time Magazine, and a MSNBC contributor on programs like Morning Joe and Deadline White House with Nicole Wallace. He's Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. Enjoy the show. I appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule. Ooh, I'm holding on. You know, it's a crazy time, but you know, it, it is what it is. You know, it's a it's a good kind of busy in, in the midst of madness, but that's okay. In the midst of madness. Yeah. Supak, who is the producer, she's, you know, listening to us now. But when, as we were uh, joining, she just asked me how I am. And then meeting me for someone said, how are you? And I said, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was like, I'm like, man, like, you know, I probably need to assess yeah. you know, where, where I'm at because it just feels like, you know, the work and the demand is, is moving at the speed of light and the circumstances we're faced with are so heavy and actually deserve time of reflection and grieving and movement or something for me. And I'm just trying to wrestle, wrestle my own emotions down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um, how does one uh, put one's feet on the ground? Um, it's, it's, it's a challenge or keep one's feet on the ground. Right. And when I what I'm thinking of is what put one's feet on the ground is how does one get up out of the damn bed in the face of all of this? But, you know, um, we got to keep fighting. So because yeah. the country, the country is on a nice edge. So were you at all surprised about what happened at the Capitol? No, I, I I knew that, you know, Trump was fomenting uh, um, something. I didn't know it would take the form of of, sack, of, of sacking the, you know, the Congress. Um, but I knew that he had delegitimized uh, what happened in November and that there were a percentage of the 75 million people, so close to 75 million people who voted for him, who had been radicalized by what, you know, the media is now calling the big lie. Um, and so I knew that some, some that, the, that the polity, that, that, that the country was in danger. I didn't know what kind of danger, what form it would take. Um, but I knew that there, that there was uh, a sense that the, tr- the underlying trust in the process had been eroded by this man and by those uh, like him, because there's the juxtaposition of what happened in Georgia, right, and what happened in the Capitol, because Georgia is was beyond the election of, of or- Ossoff and Warnock, the demographics of Georgia that led to the election of Ossoff and Warnock is what they're afraid of, right? How that de- how that that demogra- how those demographics might translate into a certain kind of politics, and mm-hmm. and then raise the question of who, whose country is this? What is America? So at the heart of what we saw the next day was a riot around white grievance, white hatred, white resentment. It's a dying world. 
so I have had uh, former board members and and people that I know and care a great deal about that voted for Trump. And I'm really wrestling with, it's not about being a Republican. It's not that at all. It is about you selected a person who, um, it was so obviously dysfunctional um, at minimum, you know, like ill-equipped. And, and, and now that we have gotten to see him really unravel, I feel like I want some sort of, apology or or reckoning or something like I want them to be like I'm sorry <laughs> like you know like people were saying that he was racist I can't believe I didn't see it I see it now like I want I I feel like the desire to have have something like that I don't know well you know I think it's important for us to to understand where Trump sits we have to begin to do the the, the hard work of untangling the the forces that made him possible but one way to think about it, I think, is um, Trump sits in the sweet spot between racism and greed and mm-hmm. selfishness. So there are folks who voted for Donald Trump who, who are clearly not, they're not interested in racism. They're not racist in any, def- any obvious way. What they are, though, is they're, they're really selfish and greedy. They voted for him because they wanted tax cuts. They voted voted for him because they believe in deregulation, so they could pursue their profits without, without any uh, uh, restraint. They they are uh, uh, committed to a political ideology that is is in some ways responsible for producing the context that led to the election of this fascist. So, how can I put this? There were those who didn't believe that African-Americans were less than human beings. They just needed the profits that slaves produced. And then there were those who believed that these folk were chattel, that they were akin to monkeys and apes. So part of what we've always seen is the intersection of greed and racism. And usually when racism explodes, those who are committed to greed tend to pull back. Right? But they're still committed to the exploitation of folks for their own ends and for their own aims and ends. So a lot of folk who voted for Donald Trump, uh, they are they are they're looking at their 401ks and their stock market portfolios and they're looking at their tax brackets and they're just saying, I'm good. And that kind of greed and selfishness will will literally, literally cause the collapse of the country. Well. That's what we're experiencing now, not just simply the loud races, right? They're the, that's the easy part. The more difficult part are these folk who, who um, are so selfish that they're willing to throw away the entire thing. So yeah. greedy that they're willing to throw away the entire thing. And there's been um, maybe some inspiring or hopeful efforts like the Lincoln Project uh, or um, even Hallmark. I don't know if you, you know Hallmark. You know, so there's folks that are putting out statements about what happened, but still contributing to PACs that support exactly what you're saying. And I think our companies need to really wrestle with how do they want to be part of our community and advance things that they say we say that we care about. Yeah, you know, I think Steve Schmidt um, uh, made it very clear that the Lincoln Project's objective uh, is to is to 
is to bludgeon into submission those forces that were willing to stand behind autocratic, uh, fascistic uh, uh, folk who threatened the polity. And he says that the, ch the charge, the challenge for us and the charge for us moving forward is to choose sides. We have to be on the democratic side, right? I said it in a, in a video for now this, right? the choice is there's no in between, right? You have to choose your side mm -hmm. and we have to act accordingly. There's, there's no middle ground here. Uh, and that's, that's gonna be hard for some people to swallow. Yeah, one thing that was not surprising to many and very surprising to others is the number of military, uh, ex-military and police officers that were involved in the insurgents on the Capitol. You know, again, further evidence of what communities have been saying for years and years and years that we have white supremacists that are policing us. Um, they're treating us as such. There was the, the police officer that was responsible for leading efforts of inclusion for a police department that was arrested at the Capitol. So the, in his day job, he was working to eradicate white supremacy out of the police department and, you know, cloaked as a, you know, and he's a white supremacist that's storming the Capitol. And, um, you know, I, I guess this country is gonna keep revealing itself until we make we make the choices we need to make, I suppose. Yeah, you know, there's this, there's a sense in which you know, Baldwin, Baldwin would say that it's very difficult for white America to believe us. Because to concede what we're saying is to say something about themselves. So we have had, as a part of Black America's experience in the United States, a deep suspicion of certain institutions, a deep suspicion of, of police, a deep suspicion of healthcare providers, a deep, and it, it grows out of experience, right? And so people were telling us that we were uh, paranoid in our talk about the police, that they, they view police as protectors. We believe police as occupiers. We see them as occupiers, as threats, as danger. Now the country's experiencing a deep sense of distrust about its institutions, distrust of, of Congress, distrust of the imperial presidency, distrust. I mean, I heard uh, pundits uh, talking about, we have to really be, be mindful during the inauguration. We have to look not only without, but within, right? And that kind of distrust of law enforcement, this distrust of, military, of the military, that is something that has been a feature of Black life that now the country must grapple with. Um, uh, hopefully it, it, it occasions an opportunity for us to, um, to really try to begin again, as it were. To begin again. How do you think um, the media has been complicit in what, or do you think the media has been complicit in what we're seeing? Oh, absolutely. Um, so look, greed is greed, no matter what, you know, sphere it, it evidences itself from individual pursuits to uh, corporations. And we have to understand mainstream media in particular as this kind of corporate space that has cashed in on the chaos of Trumpism. 
um, the spectacle of it all. Um, and uh, it has given oxygen to it by not describing truthfully what it is. And we can go back before Trumpism emerged. Think about how folk were describing the Tea Party. Mm. That the Tea Party was this um, response to economic dislocation, that this was a response to uh, uh, elites, economic elites on the, on the East Coast who had lost sight of, of, of rural America, left behind working class Americans and da 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 And these protests were, were a reflection of the disaffected when in fact we knew what it was. We knew who they were. We knew that it was, it, it was the response to the election of Obama. We knew that it, 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 it was in concert with Mitch McConnell's decision to, to ensure that Obama's presidency would be a failed presidency. The gutting of the Voting or Voting Rights Act, the passage of voting suppression, voting, voting, voting suppression and voter ID laws across the country. We knew that this was the latest instance of the forgotten American that we saw with Nixon and all of these folks. We knew it, but they wouldn't describe it as such. They refused to. They were like, this is economic dislocation. And of course, the part of it is, but but we knew it had a deep racial animus at the heart of it. Deep resentment and grievance was at the heart of it. So the media failed in describing it. And you know what? Those Tea Party candidates are the same folk who are the ones that we're worried about in the Congress right now. The ones who voted to overthrow the election. Those are the same people. The ones who wanted to disenfranchise Black voters in Milwaukee, in Detroit in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, the same people. And so I, I think it's, it's our, our reluctance, and I say our because I'm a part of the media, it's, it's our reluctance to tell the damn truth about what we're seeing. And then of course, our insistence on making money and what we tell, if that makes sense. Well, it does make a lot of sense. And, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in philanthropy where I don't think our sector is excused because I think that we can also play it safe and be worried or put extra measures or not challenge um, people that we are in relationship with. I mean, there's a, just a reckoning. And I think this is part of the way in which we are at least trying to reckon with what is our role. And part of, and part of that is, is simply saying we don't have all of the answers. And this is not about agreement, but it is about some agreements that we should have about who we want to be as a country and as a community. And so I don't know where we're headed. It feels, I don't know if this is a, if this is the ending point or the starting point. It almost feels like this, like there's so much more to come. And I think the fear for me of, of sort of the unknown of where our institutions go and where this behavior continues to grow and our ability or inability to respond to it is, is weighing quite heavily on me. Well, you know, I'm a country boy from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. So that means I grew up with a lot of hurricanes. And hurricanes are, 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 are interesting weather phenomena. The front part of the hurricane is very violent. The winds, it's throwing off tornadoes. Um, it's very violent. And then there's, the, then, there's the, then there's the eye of the storm. And the eye of the storm gives you the illusion of calm. So you can walk out and assess the damage from the front of the, from the, front of the storm. But you cannot get uh, too comfortable because the tail's coming. 
and the tail of the storm is as violent as the front end. We're now beginning to experience the beginning of the tail of the storm. November 3rd, we were in the eye. So buckle up. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I'm saying it because the, the country stands on a nice edge. And if we, if we try to rush back to a space of comfort and safety, we will secure the fate of the nation in the face of all. Can you talk about um, what it requires to stay in discomfort? Truth, honesty, the willingness to confront, you know, uh, the discoloration, the boils, the uh, the what what is looking one what is looking one what is looking back at you in the mirror, right? Uh, and that's sometimes uncomfortable, you know, when you say, "Oh my God, look, I've aged. Look at this." And, Oh my goodness, I, you know, what happened? Time is ruthless. I don't want to see it. No, 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 no. You have, we're going to have to look ourselves squarely in the face. And that involves grappling with our failures. Mm -hmm. We have to make, we have to offer an honest assessment of what has produced this moment. And that's going to require our friends, some people we love, to acknowledge what Reaganism has done to this country, what the last 40 years have meant, what they've done to working people, what has happened to institutions. There's a reason why, right? Trumpism or the Trump administration has failed to respond to COVID-19. And that reason isn't just incompetence. That reason is in part ideological. Mm. For the last 40 plus years, we have heard uh, a, a, a politics that big government was bad, that the only role for fe the federal government was to ensure the, 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 the efficiency of the economy and to provide for the national defense. Everything else was bad. It was an overreach. It was tyranny. So we have seen through tax cuts and the like an attempt to starve the beast. That's their language. Mm. And what we saw with the with this, uh, the ascendance of Donald Trump, were those three buckets that Steve Bannon laid out. One of those buckets was to deconstruct the administrative state. That is an ideological position that is consistent with Reaganism. It's not Trumpism. And so the, when there is a national crisis that requires national coordination, well, if you've been attacking federal, big government for the last of the federal government for the last 40 years, and then you need it, it's been eviscerated. So part of the, 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 the reckoning will involve telling the truth about the last 40 years. Now that's gonna be hard for some folks. Oof. I mean, you know, you started out talking about the lie. It's not the first time we've heard the language. There are people that are telling themselves lies about what they grew up in, who they grew up with, what they've been involved with or complicit with. Um, there's, there's, there's been a um, an aspirational language 
that we have really bought into a belief of what America could be. And it hasn't been that for many, many people. And we have erased those experiences that we don't want to see just in general. And, um, you know, is, is part of the lie being able to wake up to one's own experience or is it really waking up to what the American experience is or is it both? It's a little bit of both, you know? You know, when you think about it, most of those folks who stormed the Capitol hold the view that only white voters matter. Mm-hmm. That the America that they're defending is an America that uh, extends citizenship, the right to dissent to certain folk, and everybody else needs to shut up and just be grateful. Right? And if you take that to be Trump's position, then Trump is actually right. He says he won by landslide. He's actually right if you only count white voters. You see? So the point, the point I'm trying to make here is this, 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 the story that we tell ourselves, that this is an example of democracy achieved, right, is a lie. The story that we, you know, to hear President-elect Biden said, this is not who we are. That's a lie, right? That's not to say this is who we are in its entirety, but he knows it's not true. That's an aspirational claim. So part of what I was trying to suggest earlier in your question, what does it mean to just kind of stand there and look, this is, what is looking back at me? Who's looking back at me? Because we've been dodging and evading and hiding, right? Because we want to protect our innocence and it's made us monstrous. It's made the nation monstrous. You know, and 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 you know they can't they can't say it's just poor white folk. That's not who all was out there. No, 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 no. No, they can't say that. No, no. So this last gasp of a dying America, hopefully it won't it won't be resuscitated. You know, this America that's in its death throes, right, poses a a, a threat to all of us if we don't if we're not honest with ourselves. And I'm talking not only about conservative Republicans who are corporatists in their orientation. I'm also talking about milquetoast liberals, right? Let's talk about the liberal and how how have they or we or been complicit? Well, you know, Baldwin has this wonderful formulation that he says, he, and I'm paraphrasing him, he says he's skeptical of people who, wants, who want to do something for me as opposed to with me. So when we think of when we think of racial justice or racial equality as a charitable enterprise, as a philanthropic gesture, then we leave in place the frame, right? That some people are valued more than others, that some people possess equality such that they can give it to somebody else. Who are you to give me equality? That doesn't make any sense to me. We have to break open that frame. And so part of what we do know is that there are a whole bunch of folk who are interested in tinkering around the edges, but not changing the fundamental bases, right? of the society that has produced the inequality. This is what makes Georgia so interesting to me, right? So not only is Georgia the state that produced Newt Gingrich, it's also the state that produced that vile image of of Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn standing in front of Stone Mountain with those black prisoners behind him. And there, Bill Clinton gave voice to this third way democratic view of criminal justice that led to the acceleration of the carceral state. What Georgia, the election of Ossoff and Warnock revealed is that that political strategy is dead, is bankrupt. The Clintonism, 
as it was expressed in that moment, where there is this kind of obsession with, you know, the Reagan Democrat, the Democratic Party, the forlorn, the forlorn lover who's been rejected by the white worker, right? Who's simply obsessed with with, with getting him back, right? That has been cast to the wind in Georgia, right? So part of what we do know is that this mess that we're in is not just simply the result of Republicans, right? Democrats have been complicit in this. Republican didn't sign welfare reform. A Republican didn't sign the criminal justice. No, right? I can go down the line, right? And so part of what I think, you know, is another example that comes to mind. In New York, the chancellor of the New York public school system in the city uh, made note of how um, segregated the schools were. And he wanted to implement this program that would begin to address how deeply segregated the public schools were. And in the upper, upper West Side, all of these rich white folk who donate to the Democratic Party, they held their um, town hall meeting. And what was revealed? What's going to happen to my school? What's going to happen to our children? They started defending the structures as they were. Mm, So selfish. Yeah, selfishness is not the possession of of any part. Greed is not the possession of any one party. Right? Um, And so when I talk about milquetoast liberals, I'm talking about those who are content with tinkering around the edges while leaving the most vulnerable, right, uh, only as uh, uh, the recipients of our chair. In my seat at the Minneapolis Foundation, and we have a number of people that are working in philanthropy that don't want to tinker around the edges. I don't know if you have any advice for us or them. But what would you suggest to people that are working within a system that um, recognize the tinkering, <laughs> right? And right. and and wanna and wanna really do more? Like we're frustrated with either inaction or slow action, the tinkering, the performative, um, the surface level. You know, I I don't know. I can't, I you know one of the things I want to admit, you know. Uh, the temptation is always to to speak as if, you know, to offer answers as if you as if you have them. I don't. Uh, yeah. I'll admit my I'll admit my ignorance immediately. You know, at any point. The only thing I could talk, only thing I could say in response to your question, um, Sister China, is 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 um, begin with the strategy to make yourselves obsolete. If you're not beginning, if that's not your starting point, then you're tinkering. So what does what would it mean for us to conceive of our practice in such a way that we are no longer needed? And then move. Yeah. I think that's helpful. And I think there are people within systems that have been consistent in the way, like, you know, we have a black police chief here. You know, I support our chief Rondo, and we had George Floyd. And there's things that need to be improved, done with, reimagined, 
Um, you know, whatever the words, right? It needs to go away, be rebuilt. I get that. I also support the chief and I don't want him clipped at his knees because I think with the proper support, we could make more headway than what we've been, that we've done. And I think that not only do we have um, frustration and distrust in our systems, there are people within our systems that are really working to make change. And I think it's very hard um, to be a person uh, of color, in some cases leading in these areas, knowing you want to run faster but you have a system that you are trying to evolve into where it ought to be or where it should have been. And I, I think that there's an importance that people have that, what, you know, your suggestion in mind, but also um, understand the change won't come overnight, but it's no, you know, you still got to be bold. Right. And, you know, Baldwin wrote in, in his last book, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, published in 1987, the, the challenge that was ahead of us. And we saw it in Baltimore, when Baltimore exploded after the murder of, of Freddie Gray. And we saw in the split screens, Black leadership and Black people riding. Black president calling them thugs, Black folk desperate, right? And what Baldwin was trying to grapple with at that moment is what happens when white supremacy still obtains and, white, and Black folk hold the reins of power in its execution? Mm. Hmm? What happened? What does it mean? What does it mean that in this city run by Black people that all these Black babies have been murdered? How do we grapple with the performance of power in this sense? What do we do when Black folk, when Black folk have been absorbed into the very ways within this regime and we are in, in, a, in, in interesting sorts of ways are, are benefiting from, 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 from the way in which it works? Some of us at least. Right? So if we're about this work, if we're seriously about this work of producing a more just America, you know, it seems to me we have to, I want, you know, we have to imagine the conditions under which I don't have to say this. Imagine the conditions where the chief of police is a different kind of animal, even though we, we love you, we understand what you're trying to do, but you are heading an organization, you no know, structure that by definition, right, poses a threat to vulnerable communities in this country, by definition, because you are charged in some ways to contain, to corral, to discipline. What does it mean to shift from a frame of law and order to a frame of safety and security? How does that shift transform how I understand your work, Mr. Chief of Police, <laughs> right? And then what is your role in how you think of your task as the chief of police in helping us get there? That's the question, right? And that's the question for those of us who work in philanthropy. That's the question for those of us who, who are doing this justice work. I want the, the legacy civil rights organizations to figure out how the hell they don't have to exist. Many of them are functioning as if they just want to continue to be. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not just you had, one. You had a little bit of truth telling during the Obama administration and some other things. And I think, you know, as I was thinking about the point that you made about Reaganism and then thinking about the Obama administration and now the Biden Harris administration, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, does that present for you any hope? Sure. My hope is in us. My hope is in politicians inevitably disappoint. That's what they do. Right? So, 
You know, you think about that was a special election that elected Warnock. He's already running for the Senate again. He's already started his next campaign. So I don't expect he's I went to school with Raphael. I don't expect much from him because he's already having to start up raising money in order to run again. Uh, so politicians are are what they are and, and they inevitably disappoint. But I'm more my hope resides in us. And everyday ordinary people. You know, Miss Ella Baker had it right. We are the leaders we've been looking for, mm-hmm. you know? And if we create the conditions under which everyday ordinary people can understand that they have the power, that they, that they hold the power to transform their conditions of living, that politicians are, are only as good as the ones that we choose. Hmm? Then there's that. There's that. <laughs> there is and that. There's that. So I got in a lot of trouble over my critique of Obama. Because, you know, we were so, so many of us elite folk were so enamored and so happy to get invitations to the White House. And Black folk have been catching hell. We were catching hell. And folk were talking about lifting all boats. And we were catching hell. The entire nine decade of the 90s, all of the gains of the 1990s, wiped out by the Great Recession and we tinkering around the edges, right? Police killing our babies, and we're putting forward a commission that only suspend the, the deployment of military equipment to, to local police forces, but you don't really change the way in which policing happens, right? And you, are you not? No, 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 no. I love Black people more than I love symbolic Black folks in high places. I love the most vulnerable more than I love symbolic representation. So the question for a lot of sisters will be, uh-oh. Uh-oh. The question for a lot of sisters will be, is that when the if the Biden administration decides to drag its feet on criminal justice reform, uh, and they deploy Sister Kamala yeah. to calm our anger, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. And... You know, even in an election, you know, I have, you know, the 20 year olds in my life, particularly the young black males in our life are like, yo, I'm not voting. Mm-hmm. I'm not voting because she's on the ticket. My brother was locked up. Right. Like, I may not know how this works, but I know I'm not voting for that unless I hear something that means it's going to make a difference for me. Mm-hmm. And I had to respect that. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we think that, you know, it's a monolith and we're just going to move forward. and. And because she's on the ticket, everyone's agreeing. And, you know, I appreciate the the critique, Um, you know, and there's times that I'm like, dang, people are rough. (laughs) You know, you get into these systems and positions and community members can be hard. But I think it's important for us to be honest. You know, and I'll be honest, you know, I when when her campaign, when she was running for president, they called me. I had conversations with them trying to push. You know, you always try to use what influence you have to push people to you know, to a more progressive position, to the left, you want to do as much as you, you know, but the point I'm making here is not so much a kind of judgment about Kamala Harris, it's a judgment of the politics of the moment. And oftentimes we get caught up in symbolic representation and we lose lose sight of the substantive need for policy that will transform the circumstances of the most vulnerable among us. And I'm only interested I'm only, I think as, as, as we transform those who are on the margins, as we transform the circumstances of the least of these, 
we transform this entire society, it will have systemic implications, right? If we begin to assume a certain, if we, if let me say it differently, it will have systemic implications if we usher in a new moral and social contract with each other. Mm-hmm. And that new moral social contract involves that every human being should be guaranteed a quality of life in this country. That means they should have a roof over their head. They should be able to make a living wage. Every human being should be guaranteed access to quality health care, that they shouldn't go broke because they're sick. And every human being that walks this place, in the walks in this country, should have the right to be safe and secure. That doesn't mean law and order. That's a whole different way of thinking about community, of thinking about being together. We need a new social and moral contract that will transform the circumstances of the least of these, and it will have systemic implications for all of us, you see. Um, but folks are greedy and selfish. <laughs> folks are greedy and selfish and people are tired, right? We started out talking about, are we okay? So I'm going to close with this idea of, you know, Baldwin, you know, would leave to, to repair, uh, to sustain, to provide a place to get to the balcony, to find clear perspective. And in a time that's moving so quickly, that is so deeply emotional um, and personal, Mm-hmm. You know, what what are ways that we can or what are practices perhaps that you're doing or that any suggestions like how do you know, was Baldwin right and like leaving and finding finding a place of safety to clear one's head and to uh, refresh? I think he was right. All of us can't pick up and leave the country, though. You yeah. know, we can't just, you know, be in Paris one day and the next day in London and the next day in Istanbul. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all don't have that means. And with COVID-19, we can't do it even if we do have the means. Yeah. Um, what what I think, as, as I put it in the book, we need our elsewheres though. Yeah, we do need our elsewheres. I have, I've been in this amazing space since COVID dropped, before COVID, no, since COVID dropped. Um, I've, had a, I've been in a reading group with, with my closest partners from Morehouse. And, and Cornell West. So it's some of, the, some of the most brilliant Black men you can imagine. And every other week we get together. We've been reading, I mean, from Thomas Hardy to, we just finished reading William Kelly's A Different Drummer. And next week we have uh, uh, Faulkner's The Bear. And then after that, we're going to be reading Tony Morrison. We've read uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. We've just been reading together. And we get on, we get on Zoom and we laugh and we we have our liquor and we're talking and, and but we're reading together. And it's a community that affirms, affirm, we affirm each other. We replenish in a space of love. You can rage in this, in those spaces. You can laugh full belly laughs. You can get a little too full of liquor and get sentimental and, and you can be vulnerable. Your spine can, you know, when, you, when, when your legs buckle, they got your back, right? And I think in this moment, when people ask you how you hold it up, you need those communities. A close partner of mine, we play golf. We've been playing golf for 15 years. I got a text just yesterday telling me he was dead, cold. Sorry. And 
my closest, and you know, we go on golf trips, you know, he cusses me out. It's just, a, it's hilarious. We just, he's just a beautiful brother. Um, and I call my friend to tell him, my neighbor, uh, to tell him. And he says, man, we gotta figure out how to have a drink. I can't, I can't do this by myself. You gotta have those spaces to be vulnerable and fragile. Spaces of love that allow you to cry, to replenish so that you can re-enter the frame, right? Because this is a long distance ride. Uh, you gotta catch your breath every now. Well, that's a word right there. We all have to have our places of elsewhere and um, you know, and, and just the advice of you can't always be armored up, right? You can't be distant from the pain of what's happening. And you need to have people that care more about you that are in community with you, not the issues, what you represent, but with you. And, um, you know, I take that, I hear that, um, you know, we need that. We need to find those people. And um, we are wrestling with so much grief and so much personal loss. And, you know, I've shared over and over, I lost my mom and my sister-in-law this year. And, um, you know, in the midst of it all, and it just puts it in perspective. Um, it puts it in perspective. So I, I, I love that you have those men. I'm envisioning, I've, I've created the table. I have my 12, 15 names that I think might be in it. Um, <laughs> probably none of it is true, but it brings me joy that it's giving you a place of, of safety and, and reassurance and, and, and joy. And I appreciate um, your leadership that you've been um, providing. People can check out your books. Um, Begin Again is right here on my shelf. I got my signed copy. I appreciate it. Um, I wish you um, joy and peace and clarity as we move forward into these uncertain times. Thank you. And you know, you stay safe out here. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too. Take care. That's Dr. Eddie Claude Jr. and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. You can follow Shonda on Twitter or Instagram at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pat-Kenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.